Joe Biden is not playing with a full deck. This is not somebody you can have as your president. It takes one to know one. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE and Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii, on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, in Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington, on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler of nicolesandler.com, filling in for Brad and Desi on this edition of The Bradcast. We've got a great show for you today. Our guest is somebody that I've been honored to have interviewed numerous times over the last decade or so. I think the first time I ever interviewed Jeff Charlotte was after his book, The Family, was released. The Family tells the story of this secretive religious, I'll call it a cult, The Family, or The Fellowship, that basically controls Washington, D.C., well, a new Netflix miniseries, a five-episode series based on Jeff Charlotte's The Family and the follow-up book Sea Street premieres Friday, August 9th on Netflix. So who better to talk to on today's edition of the broadcast than author Jeff Charlotte himself? To wet your whistle a little bit, let me share this with you. It's the official trailer for the family. In my 20s, I stumbled my way in, and what I found is a secretive Christian organization called The Family that had been hiding in plain sight for over 80 years. This was a group with tentacles around the world. A humble example of leadership that the world has never seen. A breathtaking enmeshment of church and state. There were congressmen, senators, world leaders. And they say it's about faith, but there's a shared understanding that what we're really about here is power. I'd like to single out Doug Coe. Doug Coe and all of his associates, I'm grateful. Doug Coe is the longtime leader of the family. He's the most powerful man in Washington you've never heard of. He said the more invisible you can make your organization, the more influence it will have. Jesus plus nothing. It's a powerful thing. 
Using the National Prayer Breakfast, they dispatch representatives to build relationships with foreign leaders. That is exactly the kind of meeting that I would want to exploit. For the family, Jesus says you must go to those who are in positions of power. God always uses imperfect vessels to do his perfect work. President Trump's an imperfect vessel. Jesus is the answer, but Jesus and Capitol Hill don't mix. Because we want our family to stay together. Ooh, and the family they're talking about is this religious underbelly that kind of controls Washington, D.C. So stick around. Author, journalist, professor Jeff Charlotte joins us a little later on in the hour on this edition of the broadcast. As I said earlier, I'm Nicole Sandler, a host of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad and Desi today. And we'll start the program, as I usually start my show, with a look at the news. I read the news today, oh boy. Well, Donald Trump is on vacation. Yes, if spending over $106 million two and a half years into his presidency on Trump's golf outings isn't enough for you, never fear. He's spending the next 10 days at his Bedminster, New Jersey golf property. And yes, you and I, the taxpayers, are on the hook for paying his own golf club for his vacation for the next 10 days, and including renting golf carts for Secret Service agents to follow him around and everything else that goes with it. I also need to point out that this Friday, August 9th, marks the fifth anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown. Yep, five years ago, police officer Darren Wilson killed a young man, a teenager named Michael Brown, in Ferguson, Missouri, left his body in the street, unshielded from view for four hours, sparking days, weeks, months of protests. And in the five years that have passed since, nothing has gotten better. We are still a nation reeling from gun violence, whether it's in the hands of a police officer who doesn't understand how to do his job, or in the hands of a domestic terrorist who shoots up a public space filled with innocent people. Nancy Pelosi on Thursday sent Donald Trump a letter asking him to use his powers in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution to bring the Senate back to consider House-passed bipartisan gun violence prevention legislation. But if you're wondering about Pelosi bringing the House back uh, in session, well, that's not going to happen. She says she believes the onus is on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. After all, the Democratic-led House in February passed two bills dealing with uh, gun safety and background checks. Mitch McConnell appeared on a Louisville radio station on Thursday and said that he will not call his chamber back into session, but he did say that background checks would be, quote, front and center in the gun debate when Congress returns. Yeah, we'll see. Meanwhile, the threat of gun violence remains a way of life in America. The city of Houston is on alert after a gunman killed two people on a freeway during Thursday's afternoon rush hour. The shooter is still on the run. Police say they don't have a motive for the attack, but noted there were drugs found in the attacker's vehicle. And then there's Springfield, Missouri where a 20-year-old man wearing body armor and military fatigues entered a Walmart armed with a long gun, a handgun, and more than 100 rounds of ammunition. He was arrested after causing what was described as a panic, you think? 
On his way out of town, first to a big-dollar fundraiser in New York before he heads to Bedminster for his aforementioned vacation, Donald Trump did his dance with the press on the South Lawn before he got on Marine One, the helicopter, to leave, shouting over the whir of the helicopter rotor blades. He gave lip service to the idea of background checks. That's not enough. We need a new assault weapons ban. That's just me. Reports say that the president has been warned by the NRA's Wayne LaPierre not to go there. To be continued. In impeachment news, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler admitted in a few interviews on Thursday that an impeachment inquiry is actually already underway. A lot of Democrats, they don't want to be forced to vote for an impeachment inquiry, but they presumably would be willing to vote for impeachment itself if you presented well, no, them with the evidence. There's no such thing. Um, the committee has initiated an investigation into the question, uh, in, into the various malfeasances. So in your by mind, the, you're saying this is exactly the same as what we all call formal impeachment proceedings by another this name? Is, this is formal impeach, impeachment proceedings. We are investigating all the evidence. We're gathering the evidence. And we will, at the conclusion of this, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, vote articles of impeachment to the House floor, or we won't. That's a decision that we'll have to make. But that's exactly the process we're in right now. Okay. House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler speaking with Aaron Burnett on CNN. We were kind of waiting for this one to happen. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is suing the Justice Department and the FBI over his termination from the agency last year arguing that his firing was politically motivated, stemming from Donald Trump's attacks against him and other DOJ officials. This is a lengthy and scathing federal lawsuit from Andrew McCabe. In it, he asks D.C. federal court to determine that his termination was unlawful, to reinstate him as deputy director of the FBI, and also in turn to then reinstate his early retirement benefits and full pension. But really in this lawsuit, this is a direct attack on the president. And this was something that was previewed by Andrew McCabe in that 60 Minutes interview that happened just a few months ago. When he really put it this way, he said, I was fired because I opened an investigation against the president of the United States, and he doesn't hold back in this lawsuit. In fact, in the opening paragraph of this lawsuit, Andrew McCabe puts it this way. He says that he believes the United States government remains a government of laws and not of men, and that he has brought this case to remedy the the defendant's unlawful retaliation for his refusal to pledge allegiance to a single man. That single man that he later goes on to talk about, of course, being the president. Andrew McCabe has brought this lawsuit against the Attorney General Bill Barr, the Department of Justice, as well as the director of the FBI, Chris Wray, and the FBI itself. But really, uh, it seems to be that his main target here is the president. For the first few pages of this lawsuit, he talks about the president's unconstitutional scheme, as he puts it, to target members of the FBI, agents, officials, who didn't agree with the president. That report from CNN. Okay, I know this might be shocking to some, but there's another high-profile departure from the White House. It's like the 400th or so uh, since Donald Trump took office. Trump on Thursday tweeted that he'll appoint Joseph McGuire, currently director of the National Counterterrorism Center, as the acting director of national intelligence after Dan Coats steps down from the post next week. At the same time, he announced that Sue Gordon, who is currently the number two intelligence official, who by law would take over temporarily as acting director, would instead leave with Coates 
on August 15th. Sue Gordon served more than 30 years in intelligence posts at the CIA and other agencies. And, um, well, she informed Trump of her decision to retire in a letter on Thursday after it became clear that he wouldn't permit her to rise to the position of acting director. According to reports, several Trump allies outside the White House had urged the president to remove Gordon, describing her as too close to former CIA director John Brennan. Brennan, of course, has publicly criticized Trump's leadership, and the president in turn has called him, quote, the worst CIA director in our country's history. Will it ever end? 17 of the 23, 24 Democratic hopefuls for the 2020 nomination are participating in a gun safety forum in Des Moines, Iowa on Saturday. The event was organized by Every Town for Gun Safety Action, Moms Demand Action, and Students Demand Action, groups advocating for gun regulation after previous mass shootings throughout the country. Many of the candidates are spending a lot of time in Iowa. Senator Bernie Sanders is organizing a softball game between members of his campaign team and the media later this month at Iowa's historic Field of Dreams. His campaign framing the game as a way to counteract Trump's rhetoric against the media. Good on him. And Joe Biden took his turn Friday on the soapbox stage at the Iowa State Fair where he made a few of his classic Biden gaffes, for instance. And ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get up. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is. Even his supporters know who he is. We got to let them know who we are. We choose unity over division. We choose science over fiction. We choose truth over facts. We choose truth over facts? Okay, but it got worse. You should challenge these students. We should challenge students in these schools to have advanced placement programs in these schools. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. What? Wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. I really mean it, but think how we think about it. Okay, so I guess he realized what he said and tried to correct himself. Still six months away from the Iowa caucuses. And that's just a bit of what's news for now. Still to come on today's broadcast, we're going to speak with Jeff Charlotte, professor, journalist, author of The Family and C Street, which provided the basis for a new Netflix five-part series that debuts Friday, August 9th. We'll speak with Jeff Charlotte coming up. But first, when we return, my thought on how to combat our gun violence epidemic here in the U.S., an idea I had six years ago might finally be happening? Details coming up. Details coming up. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. 
We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of the Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com, and for Brad and Desi today. Obviously, we're all still shaken by the events of last weekend. Two mass shootings in the span of 13 hours, and three within a week. Actually, more mass shootings than there have been days so far in 2019. Let that sink in. So, Six years ago, I wrote an article calling on the world's civilized nations to issue travel advisories for the United States. My reasoning was twofold. One, of course, protect people. It's not safe here. But the second reason I came up with this idea was because I realized that the murder of 20 six- and seven-year-olds in their first-grade classroom didn't motivate Congress to do anything. The shooting in the head of a congresswoman, a sitting member of Congress at a constituent event in Tucson, Gabby Giffords. That didn't shock Congress into acting. The only thing that's going to make these power-hungry miscreants do the right thing by the American people, I guess, is to hit them in the pocketbook. One way to do that is to hurt the tourism industry here in the U.S., so I will link to this article that I wrote in 2013, uh, where we post the broadcast at bradblog.com. But basically, that was the gist of it. I suggested that civilized nations around the world warn their citizens against traveling to the United States because it's simply not safe. A few nations have already done so. Japan actually has some kind of a travel advisory for their citizens about coming to the U.S. This past week alone, Uruguay and Venezuela joined a growing group of nations warning that it's not safe here. And on Wednesday, Amnesty International made a bold statement issuing a stark warning that I want to share with you. Here it is. Amnesty International Travel Advisory, United States of America. The Amnesty International Travel Advisory for the country of the United States of America calls on people worldwide to exercise caution and have an emergency contingency plan when traveling throughout the USA. This travel advisory is being issued in light of ongoing high levels of gun violence in the country. If you decide to travel to the United States, be extra vigilant at all times and be wary of the ubiquity of firearms among the population. Avoid places where large numbers of people gather, especially cultural events, places of worship, schools, and shopping malls. Exercise increased caution when visiting local bars, nightclubs, and casinos. Depending on the traveler's gender identity, race, country of origin, ethnic background, or sexual orientation, 
they may be at higher risk of being targeted with gun violence and should plan accordingly. Under international human rights law, the United States has an obligation to enact a range of measures at the federal, state, and local levels to regulate access to firearms and to protect the rights of people to live and move about freely without the threat of gun violence. The government has not taken sufficient steps to meet this obligation. Wow. That's the verbiage in the travel advisory for the United States of America issued by Amnesty International. It makes a lot of sense to me. So that's something that was done that can help us in our time of national mourning and shock, frankly. This Saturday, August 10th, a number of gun control advocacy groups have banded together, led by Guns Down America, to hold rallies at Walmarts, with the flagship event being held at the Walmart here in Coral Springs, which happens to be about three blocks away from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. In fact, the significance of this particular Walmart is it's where the shooter ran to when he left the high school campus after killing 17 people. So Saturday morning, August 10th at 10.30 a.m., is the rally at the Walmart in Coral Springs on Coral Ridge Drive. But GunsDownAmerica.org is where you can go and put in all your information. They have a, a, a messaging toolkit for others who want to hold a rally at their own local Walmart in your community. The reason they're going after Walmart is because Walmart is the largest retailer in America and one of the largest gun retailers in the world. That means they have tremendous political sway. And um, these groups are calling on Walmart to join the fight in building safer communities with fewer guns. So there's that. One other thing I want to share with you, again, from the local newspaper here, the Miami Herald, a letter to the editor that appeared earlier this week. And what stood out to me about it, uh, aside from the eloquence with which it was written, was who wrote it. It's a 16-year-old high school junior. I was 10 years old and in fourth grade on December 14, 2012, when a shooter killed 20 children and six adults in an elementary school at Sandy Hook. It could have been me or my sister, who was in kindergarten at the time. It also could have been me at Parkland, when I was a freshman in high school only an hour away from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, or since I'm Jewish, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Two days ago, I was at a large shopping center at the time when the El Paso shooting occurred. At 16, I consider myself lucky to be alive because I know that there is a significant chance that one day someone I know and love will not escape. I shouldn't feel this way, nor should anyone remaining untouched by the grasps of violence affecting so many. We're supposed to have an unalienable right to live and live unafraid without fearing for our lives every day. But I do live afraid. So do many Americans. It's hard not to when 31 people died in two mass shootings in the span of 24 hours, and there have been more mass shootings than days in 2019. I constantly check for the exits when I enter a movie theater or concert, calculate an escape route for each one of my six classes every year, and monitor to make sure no one comes into the CVS or Walmart I'm shopping at with a gun. My already heavy backpack is further weighed down by the bulletproof panel my mom bought me to take to school each day. Growing up like this is a uniquely American experience, one that characterizes the lives of millennials and Gen Zers. 
And though I identify as an activist, I wish I didn't have to. There's a large part of me that resents the fact that fellow teens and I have to wake up and focus on whether the government will pass the simplest background checks bill or if there will be a shooting near me that kills someone I know. I resent it because it should be adults and elected government officials focusing on these issues. I'd much rather spend my time dancing around the house, modeling clothes and makeup for my friends, and going to the beach. You know, typical things that those in government think teenagers do when they call us incompetent and assert that we don't know anything about politics, all the while allowing the gun violence epidemic to continue in an endless cycle. But I can't. Because I feel I have a moral obligation to myself, my sisters, and my friends to make sure we make it out of school alive. I feel I have a moral obligation to future generations to make sure they do not grow up like this, too. If we don't do something, besides offering thoughts and prayers, future generations will grow up like this, too. And I cannot in good conscience allow that to happen because I know how painful it is to wake up every day knowing there is a chance more will lose their lives. I feel the pain that comes with watching the news of shooting after shooting after shooting, knowing that every time it could have been me. And it's signed Nicole Marcus, Jr., Miami Palmetto Senior High. Congress needs to do something, and frankly, background checks are not enough. We need to bring back an assault weapons ban. We need to put an end to these high-capacity magazines. We need to stop the madness. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad on the broadcast. We'll be back with author Jeff Charlotte. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Dear God, hope you got the letter and I pray you can make it better down here. I don't need a big deduction in the price of beer. But all the people that you may in your image see them starving on their feet because they don't get enough to Oh, religion. It's a way of life here in America. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, filling in today for Brad and Desi. As promised earlier on the program, uh, the moment we've been waiting for, I'm excited about the debut on Netflix of the five-part series, The Family, based on Jeff Charlotte's work. So, joining us on the line now is, um, well, a, a man of whom I am in awe. Jeff Charlotte is an associate professor of literary journalism at Dartmouth, a contributing editor for Harper's and Rolling Stone, and the author of a number of great books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, which has just been adapted as a five-part series for Netflix, premiering Friday, August 9th. Jeff Charlotte, first of all, welcome back to the show and congratulations. This is great news. 
Thanks, Nicole. It's always good to be with you on the show. Well, it's it's great to talk to you. And I hadn't heard much about this uh, series. I guess I guess we could call it a mini series. It's five episodes uh, on Netflix. Was it kept quiet on purpose? Yeah, that was Netflix's approach. They came to me a few years ago and were interested in telling a story about sort of religion in the public square and had sort of decided um, that the, the family or the fellowship, as it's known, was really a big lens through which to do that story. And at the time, I had to say I was skeptical, um, having written about this, this organization. It's the oldest, it's the most influential, um, and it's the most secretive. Uh, Christian conservative, you could say Christian right organization in Washington. I said, I don't know how you're going to do. I was able to work from an archive, 600 boxes that they had dumped at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton, Illinois. But, you know, you can't take your cameras into their meetings. I said, I didn't know how you were going to do this. Director Jesse Moss, uh, uh, working with Netflix, and uh, really found the visual language. And so they worked... Um, they worked quietly uh, for, for several years and were even actually able to get some family members uh, to sit for interviews and uh, they wanted to wait until it was ready and here it is. And so now uh, now we can be public about awesome. it. Awesome. Well, and Jesse Moss will be calling in at some point, we think, while we're talking. So we'll just bring him into the conversation. But I wanted to get started with you. So the, the series, it's sort of, is it, from what I've read, it seems like it's sort of a hybrid between a documentary and a docudrama because parts of it are dramatized while there's an actor playing you as you describe what's going on. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a very strange experience as an actor playing a 30-year-old me with uh, uh, more hair. And, uh, <laughs> I'm 47 now, uh, which, you know, that's how long I've been around this working on this story. And so the first episode... We, we have a mix. We have a lot of interviews. Uh, uh, Jesse Moss is a lot of new reporting in this story. So, you know, I published my books, uh, uh, The Family and Sea Street, 2008, 2010. Wow. This okay. brings it right up to the present. Um, so, you know, this is, this is what this powerful Christian right organization is doing in the age of Trump, the Trumpocene, as I call it. And, you know, looking... Uh, here's an example. In 2010, I, I closed my book, Sea Street, and I said, well, you know, the congressman I'm talking about in this book, uh, um, then Governor Mark Sanford, then mm-hmm. Senator John Ensign, has been brought down by sex scandals, right. which the family had helped cover up. That these guys are, you know, they're not going to be the presidential timber that they had hoped to be, but who will the family's candidate in the future be? And I said, this is my one claim to fame of getting a political prediction right. I said, maybe in 2010, it will be, or in 2016, it will be a little-known Indiana congressman named Mike Pence going to the White House. So I didn't get it quite right, you know? (laughs) He's not at the top of the ticket, but he's pretty close. And and that's the story that that Netflix is telling, is bringing it into the present. But they wanted to give that that full scale, too. So the first episode includes a dramatization of the chapter with which I opened the book about as a, a 30 years old going to live in uh, this house for younger men being groomed for leadership in this organization called Ivanwald. It's uh, part of this cluster of houses they have in a wealthy cul-de-sac outside of Washington, Arlington, Virginia, all built around this mansion called the Cedars. And I lived for just a little less than a month uh, with these other young men. And we wanted to tell that story because it was important for us to help the viewer both see the ways in which 
this organization is fundamentally anti-democratic. And by that, I'm not casting any aspersions. Right from their beginning, they began with what they thought was the insight. In the 1930s, they said, they looked around at the world, they looked at fascism and communism, and they said, you know what? Democracy is done. Um, we need a greater strength. Um, so we want to we want to tell that story, but we also want to tell a story. How does someone get involved in this? Mm-hmm. Because this is not a group of people sitting in the back room smoking cigars and cackling about how to do evil. They all think they're doing good, even as they really seek out and subvert and undermine democracy and seek out and endorse and promote authoritarianism. How do they get to that point? So the dramatization telling the story of how I, as a young man, got involved allows us to do that. And it gives us, I mean, I, I want to emphasize, I'm not the director of this. Uh, this is a, a Netflix production. But what they've done is, is I think, and I can say this, you know, you can praise work that's not your own. I think what they've done is a work of art. Oh, good. I, I, I can't wait to see it. And it's an important work as well, because, again, it is based on your investigative work. Now, Jeff, Jeff Charlotte is with us, author of The Family and C Street, among others. But the, the Netflix series is based on those two books, which is, is sort of two parts of the same story. But do you go back to the beginning of The Family? For instance, this was such a secretive organization. I mean, we've all heard about, you know, the Bilderbergs and all these other secretive uh, 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 alleged governmental organizations. But this is real. This was kept a secret. It was established, the family, in 1935 to oppose FDR's New Deal and the spread of trade unions. Is Was that the purpose of the formation? Yeah, yeah. Began, began 1935. I found this man named Abraham Brady, and he believed that God came and spoke to him directly. This, he believed, this is not an interpretation. He believed that direct communication, that Christianity had been getting it wrong for 2,000 years and focusing on the poor, the suffering, the down and out. None of that, said God to Abraham Brady. He says, your mission is to focus on those whom he would come to call the up and out, the wealthy, the powerful, the elites, those whom he would call key men, and I do mean men. This is a, a gender-progressive organization. And uh, um, that he believed that by helping to give more power to the already powerful, he would bring about God's kingdom on earth. So we tell that story. We tell that story about how they began as this anti-labor organization, about how after World War II, uh, they went international by seeking out former Nazis, high-ranking war criminals whom they could whitewash and they say to them, look, if you will switch out your allegiance from the Fuhrer to the Father, then we have a place for you in the new rising American power. And their growth over the years, uh, bringing in members of Congress into every corner of the developing world until now, here we are. And, you know, the scary thing about this story right now, and because we talked, you and I have talked about this story for years, mm-hmm. is that the, the family over the years would cultivate these authoritarian strongmen and, and as heads of state around the world. We talked about Uganda, where the family group there wrote something called the, the, the Kill the Gays Bill, which is exactly what it sounds like, Death Penalty for Homosexuality, working with the dic- dictator you are in the 70s. United States always had access to the most high ranks of power, but we still had, you know, we were, we were holding on to democracy. Now in Donald Trump, that most impious of souls, we have the kind of strong man that the family looks for. 
They say, you want to understand Jesus, here's who you look at. I'm quoting here. This is going to sound extreme, but this is their language. This is their metaphor for Jesus. It's not the line of the land. They say Hitler, Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden. That's the strength that Jesus exemplifies, and that's the strength we look for in leaders. It doesn't matter if they're pious. It matters if they're willing to deal. That's what Trump is all about. Trump is the guy they have been waiting for. And this is just fascinating because we've had some deeply religious presidents, right? I think George W. Bush was one. I don't know what his affiliation was with the family. I learned from you, Jeff Charlotte, that Hillary Clinton was a member. Um, and, a friend. She, uh, she was oh, what friend. they would call a friend. Uh, okay. But yes, she, she did have a relationship with them. I mean, if you want to do religion in Washington, you're going through them. That's not my characterization. That's characterization of another Christian right leader, Reverend Rob Schenck, who has his own sort of stable of congressmen to whom he ministers, but he, he envies the family for their access and power. But yeah, Trump is uh, something else. There's, there's one of Trump's evangelical advisors, is a, a man named Lance Waldau, and he wrote a book you probably haven't heard of, but it was a bestseller in Christian right circles. It was called God's Chaos candidate. And it was basically the case for Trump to Christian conservatives who might say, you know, the rank and file aren't thinking in political terms. They're saying, like, here's how we make a deal with this guy. And in Lance Wallnow's writing, he tells a story of going to a man who he describes as almost certainly Doug Coe, the longtime leader of the family. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, how do we work with politicians, especially some of these guys who are you know, what the family calls imperfect vessels. Coe tells a parable. He said, now look again at Christ. Who does he come to uh, 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 minister to? He says he's not as interested in the sheep as he is in the wolves. And you're saying, wait a minute, what? The wolves? Well, that's true, of course. We know that Christ, uh, if you're a Christian, you believe that he came and he spoke to the tax collector and the prostitute as well, right? Mm. That's not what that's not what the family means. They mean the elites, the wolf. He says to seek out not just the wolves, but the leader of the pack, uh, the guy whom Co calls the wolf king. And you go to the wolf king and you say, look, you're pretty powerful. I can bring to you. And you almost sort of like imagine Mike Pence making this deal. I can add to you the power of Jesus. And how is that power right. of Jesus? It's the power of the biggest turnout in evangelical votes for Donald Trump in American history, more than Ronald Reagan, more than W. And he has paid them back in kind with the most fundamentalist administration in U.S. history. And as a Christian right will gladly say, we've gotten more done in these few years than under any other administration. And and what's so astounding is is the religious rights embrace of Donald Trump, who is, uh, yeah, look, I can't get into his head, but I've studied people enough to know he doesn't have religion. The man is a shyster and a a fake and a phony on every front. I mean, just look at the first time he spoke at Liberty University and talked about two Corinthians. Look, I'm an atheist Jew, and I even know that he got that wrong. Yet, I guess because he's willing to do the bidding of the religious right, in this case, the family, they embrace him with everything they've got. Well, look, I mean, the family, you look at some of the clients over the years, uh, Saharto, the late dictator of uh, Indonesia, who killed a million of his own citizens mm-hmm. and was described himself as a Muslim. Sat Bare, the dictator of Somalia, who wreaked you know, almost biblical destruction on that country, described himself as a Quranic Marxist, but he was willing to pray 
a trade prayers for Jesus with, by the way, Senator Chuck Grassley, still in power now, uh-huh. um, in exchange for U.S. military aid. So if you can work with guys like that, you can work with Trump. And I think it's actually a thing for those of us who might see ourselves as progressives, liberals, leftists, we've got to move past this sort of thing where we sort of say, oh, but that's hypocritical. Uh, and here's two reasons. One, yeah, and, and, and so what? Because there it is, they're in power. And two, we've got to recognize that the Christian right, look, they're political people, they work in the world too, they understand, um, they understand the means to an end. And Trump understood it too. Trump's pretty clear. He says, I made a deal with the evangelicals. I'll give them what they want. You know, I'll give them the global gag rule. We're going to push back on abortion. I'm going to give them the justices. We're going to push. We're going to slam public education over places no one's paying attention to. Housing and urban development under Ben Carson, another uh, associate of the family. We're going to start making religious tests for public housing. We are going to transform government. I'll give them that in exchange for their support. And everybody's sitting there and saying, that's a pretty good deal. And when you look at that, suddenly it doesn't become such a mystery how they can support Trump. They're getting a great deal. Yeah, Trump's they, getting a great deal. And not only that, I mean, with, a, with the help of Mitch McConnell, they've packed the courts uh, and, and changed the tenor of the, the, of the Depart of Justice in the United States for generations to come. I mean, he, <clears throat> Trump has been able to um, uh, get more judges confirmed to the federal bench than probably any other president in history. <clears throat> this was all by design of Mitch McConnell, um, and I guess with the backing of the religious community, uh, who has a lot more juice than we are led to believe um, if, if you don't do the digging that you, Jeff Charlotte, have done. They, they, they have the juice and the juicer right now. I mean, they are the game. Uh, this is, this is even more so, I would argue, than uh, corporate power now, right. which you, know, you start to see there's a sort of an uneasiness. Um, you know, look, this is a sort of interesting moment where we have an authoritarian leader who, um, uh, you know, I, I just came from taping a, a, a talk show this morning, uh, and the other guests on were CEOs of, uh, uh, of two major corporations, and they were there talking because they are terrified of Trump's immigration rules, because, of course, that's bad for business sure. for them. Um, but there's a bigger authoritarian picture here. And again, I think, I think the question, and, and Jesse Moss puts it really well, the director of this series on Netflix, the same one, I have to plug it, it's coming, it'll be, you can see it on August 9th, yes. all five episodes. Um, uh, you know, Putsy says, like, he, he came to my books and he said, well, this is really terrifying. Um, what is, how does this explain Donald Trump? How does this explain how the Christian right um, can be in, in business with him? And I think when we, we start looking at that, this is almost a ritual declaration of the death of the Christian right that happens in the American media. And it's happened every five years. You go all the way back to 1925 and the Scopes monkey trial. Mm. That's the trial where, remember, we had about evolution. Sure. You know, maybe you've seen the movie Inherit the Wind. And after that trial, which, by the way, the fundamentalists won, uh, nonetheless, the American press said fundamentalism is ridiculous. It's over. No one ever going to pay attention to that again. And they've been declaring that every 10 years ever since. They declared it throughout Obama. If you go back, look at the press. Obama's president, while well, the Christian right clearly has no strength anymore. 
the family is the key to understanding how they stick around. The, the Bible thumpers that we see on TV, they rise and fall. The family endures. They've been there for a long time. And if you're a figure like Trump and you're looking to make a deal, that's who you've got to talk to. So do they still have the houses around Washington, D.C., where influential people, even members of Congress, live? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They, I mean, they've got a lot of real estate. They, you wow. know, so, uh, I, I wrote about uh, um, the house on C Street, mm-hmm. a number of congressmen were living where they were. Uh, Senator John Ensign, who was having an affair, was sort of living where, where uh, Congressman Chip Pickering was actually meeting his mistress, who was a lobbyist. Uh, um, he later became a lobbyist actually there in this house that was registered as a church, so it didn't have to pay tax. Oh, my God. I sat in on some meetings there that were just uh, kind of astonishing. Um, are congressmen still living there? I don't know. One of the interesting things about the series is that Jesse Moss, was the director, was able to get uh, a number of leaders of the family to sit for interviews, and yet they still will not embrace small d democratic transparency. That's just the basic rules of the game. They won't tell us where they live. So we know that the family still has their great mansion in Arlington called the Cedars, where they host heads of state. Um, We know that the family is still paying for uh, members of Congress to go overseas and represent not us, U.S. taxpayers, um, but this Jesus thing, as Senator Jim Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma puts it, or, or Bob Adderholt, Republican Congressman Robert Adderholt, we see in this series traveling around Romania, representing the United States as he pushes Romania to pursue an anti-LGBTQ agenda to to achieve there what they cannot uh, achieve here. We see they go overseas, they come here. We also tell in this story uh, Maria Butina. uh, This is man, remember her as the Russian spy. Yeah. Her, one of her main forums was the family's only public event, the National Prayer Breakfast, um, which she got involved with at the Moscow Prayer Breakfast, one of their events that they hold for the Russian elite. Current uh, 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 family leader Doug Burley is, is, is uh, the son-in-law of the former leader who died in 2017, so now he's sort of taking on a mantle of leadership. And a longtime Russian hand organizer of prayer breakfast for the for the Russians. And the family is facilitating the entrance in the United States of some elite Russians who are actually legally banned from entering the United States. So they're helping those guys come for the national prayer breakfast. And in their wake comes Maria Butina, this Russian spy, for whom we read in the affidavit, they arrange access to American power. Oh, my goodness. This is bigger than we knew. So, Jeff Charlotte, again, The Family, which premieres on Netflix. It's a five-part series. Friday, August 9th, it'll be available. So uh, we'll probably binge it over the weekend. So you don't have to wait a week to see each subsequent episode, which is the beautiful thing about streaming services like Netflix. Um, But so it's based on your two books, The Family and C Street. And as you mentioned, C Street was published in 2010. So obviously, uh, a lot has transpired since. And uh, I love the fact that you bring it up to date and include Trump in this. Is there another book coming to uh, bring us the information that that we'll we'll find we'll we'll see in the family on Netflix? Not from me. I have another book coming out uh, soon in uh, February called "This Brilliant Darkness," but it's on other subjects, okay. including police brutality and that oh. kind of thing. But the interesting thing, since I published those books, what I was hoping would happen is the other media would sort of, you know, pick up 
pick up the torch and, and do the reporting and, and, and whether that's great shows like yours that have just stayed focused on the story or local press uh, in Oklahoma, the, 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 the state paper did a tremendous investigation of Senator Inhofe's uh, misuse of tax dollars to, to, to do his evangelizing. Um, or historians and scholars. Uh, there's a historian named uh, uh, Kevin Cruz, did a terrific, at Princeton, did a terrific history of the relationship between the national prayer breakfast and corporate interests. Um, uh, New York Times, after ignoring this story for so long, just did some good reporting on the use of the national prayer breakfast as a, a sort of a, a behind-the-scenes lobbying festival. Hmm. So, I mean, that, that's the way I like to see journalism working. One person tells a story, but it's not my story. I don't right. know the story. Right. And in that sense, that's why it's great that Netflix has now picked this up and taken it further than I ever could have. Now, we, we, we were expecting. Oh, and I think he might be there right now. Hold on. Um, it, very quickly. Do we have Jesse on the line? Is that you, Jesse? Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Oh, no problem. So uh, that's great, because Jeff and I have been talking, and we, we have a couple minutes left. So Jesse Moss is a Sundance award-winning director and cinematographer who is the director of this five-part series, that uh, The Family, for Netflix, that premieres on Friday. Um, so, Jesse, what, how did you get involved in this project? Did, did you go to Jeff and say, I want to put this on television? How did it come about? Yeah, I read Jeff's book. I had not read it when uh, it came out. Uh, just about two years ago, I read it, uh, both books, The Family and Sea Street. Right. And I just about fell off my chair. Uh, this was not a story that I knew. Um, I had not heard about the fellowship, which surprised me. Um, here was this incredible story hiding in plain sight. Jeff uh, found it. And um, I thought, is there a potential to make this a documentary series? It seemed challenging. Um, for one, the fellowship has not really cooperated with the media ever, <laughs> nope. but um, I took, took, the, took the idea to the uh, Jigsaw, Alex Gibbons' company, and to Netflix, both of whom I had just worked with, and, and said, um, is this something we can try to do? And um, they got behind the project, and we, um, inspired by Jeff's work, we set out to update the story to see what the fellowship was doing now, and to explore the question of their relevance today. That was a big motivation for me is, is this group still active? How influential do they remain? Uh, how can we build on Jeff's work? So thank you for doing this, uh, because I think it, it's such an important story. I, I've been discussing it with Jeff since, the, I think, since the family was published over, what, 12, 11 or 12 years ago. Um, and the fact that it's updated to include Donald Trump, because we've entered an even more dangerous uh, era I think. So thank you for the work. One last question for you. The, the, I'm fascinated, and I'll, I'll see it, you know, this weekend. Um, the, the combination of documentary and docudrama, is this something you came up with to tell the story? How, how did this, how did this uh, format come about? Uh, so um, I, I think Jeff's work and the story of the fellowship presented some challenges to us. How could we translate this uh, into a documentary series. Mm -hmm. And um, I, there are no uh, rules or orthodoxy uh, for how we could tell the story. And one of the things that captivated me about Jeff's book was his own experience as a young man going to live at Ivanwald right. and becoming a part of the fellowship. And I wanted to bring that experience to life in our series. And 
I felt that the best way to bring the audience in was the way Jeff brought us in was to dramatize that. Obviously, it's Jeff's point of view. It's a subjective experience. But um, with the support of Netflix, um, we were able to do that. And I think a really ambitious and, and I think very engrossing way for the audience. And I think much the same way as Jeff's account in the book provokes a set of questions uh, in, in the series, in the first episode, um, we go in kind of at ground level. We cannot really make sense of what this world is. And it, it, it then unpacks itself in the subsequent episodes. So, and, and I think audiences want to be challenged. They want to be shown these stories in um, all of the complexity that they demand. And, and I think that um, uh, we, we live in a very exciting time for nonfiction storytelling. Um, and so I like the idea that we could combine kind of rigorous investigative journalism. We could combine uh, cinema verite filmmaking, which I love to do. We could we could do some historical archive uh, work. We could also bring in uh, the tools of dramatization. And, and I think I have great faith in the audience to um, find their way through this story and arrive at an understanding of what the fellowship is um, mm-hmm. based on um, the, the, the different techniques. And, and it's a really important story that you're telling, especially at this point in American history. Uh, director Jesse Moss and the wonderful Jeff Charlotte, the author of The Family and Sea Street and a number of other books, Sweet Heaven When I Die and on and on in the new one that's coming. Uh, look forward to that. Jeff Charlotte, Jesse Moss, thank you both. And, and I'm so excited. The Family premieres on Netflix Friday, August 9th, and, um, you know, binge away. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thanks for hanging with me today. I do my own program, The Nicole Sandler Show, four days a week. I'm on live Tuesday through Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific at NicoleSandler.com. That's where you can also get the podcast. And you can hear my show Tuesday through Friday at 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific on the Progressive Voices Network. Brad and Desi will be back for the next edition of the broadcast. Until next time, good luck, world.